Good evening. I would invite you, if you would, to please open the word to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. We want to look tonight at the transfiguration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 17, and we want to read the first eight verses. If you would stand with me, please, for the reading of the word, in honor of the word. Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in, him, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. You may be seated. Let's pray. Again, if we could, please. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the time of prayer, the song, Lord, the songs of Zion. Lord, even, even the songs of Zion can speak to us. Lord, thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be honored tonight, Lord, above all things. I pray that you would take me out of the way. And, Lord, that I would speak clearly. Lord, that I would give myself and render my voice to your word and preaching, Lord, and ask that you would preserve and help my voice tonight. Thank you for these dear people, your people, Lord. Uh, do be glorified in our lives tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Our, our text tonight will be the last verse that we read. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And I've titled this, Save Jesus Only. In Matthew 17, we have a wonderful account of Jesus' transfiguration. In his transfiguration, or I'm sorry, in his incarnation, God the Son became man. Without ever being anything less than God, Jesus was robed in flesh. Amen. He was born of the seed of Abraham. He was David's son, yet David's Lord. The Son of God became and was made flesh and blood. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus is the God-man. The Word was made flesh 
the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God, fully man. But in becoming a man and wearing our nature and being made like unto his brethren, God's or Christ's divinity and Godhood was veiled. Now the natural man, for the natural man to look upon him, to watch him, to converse with him, one might certainly be struck that there was something indeed different about this man. But to recognize him for who he was, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the orbits, the giver of life, the saver and redeemer of mankind, the son of God, very God, not this man. He's just a man. A good man, perhaps, maybe even a prophet, but still a man and nothing more. Many saw him that way. And although Jesus was fully and undeniably a man, he was, is God. And on this mountain, Jesus was transfigured before three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, all witnessed this miraculous moment when the corner of the veil, as J.C. Ryle says, the corner of the veil was lifted enough for these disciples to see with their own eyes the glory of Christ, the glory of their Messiah, the glory of Jesus, the God-man. What a vision this must have been. What a reality this must have been. What an account this was. What a revelation. What a glory beyond words that Jesus, whom these disciples had for some time now walked with, who was a partaker in the weakness of the flesh, as they were, is now revealed in his power and glory. So amazing was this sight that all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this great miracle. Jesus was transfigured. One might ask, well, why did not John speak of this mighty event? Why did not the Apostle John record the transfiguration in his gospel? Well, I think my only answer to that might be that John's whole gospel account is the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would seem that in every chapter, on every page of the Gospel of John, Jesus is transfigured. But here in Matthew, we are given the living, God-breathed account of this wonderful miracle. Jesus was transfigured. He didn't become God. He was already God. But his appearance was changed. His countenance now radiated with light and glory. And all this was first for those three men, and then for the rest of the disciples, and then for the church. We weren't there, that is true. But this was recorded for us, his people, his church. And we can go right up to the top of that mountain today with Peter, James, and John, and by faith witness with them the majesty, glory, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the transfiguration has a context. 
this chapter, 17, has a context. And what has just immediately preceded his transfiguration gives meaning and context to this event. In Matthew 17, 1, we find these words. After six days, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. So what happened six days earlier? Well, in Matthew 16, we find that Jesus is in conference and much conversation with his disciples. <clears throat> he was always teaching them. He never wasted a time or an occasion in giving himself to the teaching and training of his disciples. Amen. He gave himself to that. How long-suffering and patient our Lord is with us. In a very real sense, chapter 16 is also an unveiling and a revelation of Jesus the Messiah. It is certainly not the transfiguration of his glory, but it is the unfolding and revealing of his great plan and purpose in the salvation of lost sinners. It would reveal the man of sorrows. It would show forth the suffering servant. I believe that chapter 16 is the revelation of the gospel of Christ in a way that the disciples had not heard it before. These disciples had walked with Jesus for some time now, but never did they hear him speak as he did in 16. I think it begins maybe in 1613 when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The question here is asked, Who is Jesus? What is his identity? Whom? Do men say that I am? Then we have the reply in verse 14. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. How important is this question? Jesus is ready to hold an intense conference with his disciples. And what they believe about him and who he is is critically important. The transfiguration means nothing if they do not know that who Jesus is. At least to some degree. Jesus now brings the question even closer. In verse 15, he saith to them, but whom say ye that I am? We've got to get this right. There is no room for compromise here. To miss this is to miss salvation, grace, and heaven. But Peter has come through for us in a way. I guess I could say it that way. Kind of tritely there, but Peter gives the right answer. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus doesn't pat Peter on the back and commend him for doing his homework and figuring all this out. No, he directs his disciples to the source of that revelation. And in verse 17, he says, And, and Jesus answered and said unto him, 
Behold, our blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The person and work of Christ in your salvation, my salvation, is only accomplished by one thing, and that is by revelation. Jesus Christ must be revealed to us, and this is always by his word and his spirit. Without his word and spirit revealing Jesus to us, we will ever be learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Galatians says, Paul says in Galatians, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. How did the gospel come to Paul? By revelation. It was by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. We may not all be preachers of the gospel as Paul was, but we as Christians and believers have this same testimony. Every part of this, when it pleased God. It's his timing. Who separated me from my mother's womb. Who called me by his grace <laughs> to reveal his son in me. This is the salvation that we all as true believers share in. Now, as we enter into the last part of chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, we seem to enter into the veil that was on Christ in his ministry. Matthew 16, 21 makes a great turning point in the lives of his disciples. This is new ground. This is new territory. Never had man walked this path before. It seemed, I'm sure, to them to have gone instantly to something very serious and sobering. The furnace has just been turned up seven times hotter. And if you were a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, you might sense that you were fighting Apollyon now. And the battle wasn't just to win a nice prize. The battle was for your life. Before we get to 17, we must go through 16. Rachel and Le Leah, Jacob's two wives, may give us a little insight here. Before we can embrace the beloved glory of our Rachel in chapter 17, we must first know the embrace of suffering and the cross of Leah in chapter 16. There is no Rachel without Leah. And in verse 21 of chapter 16, Jesus begins to re reveal his gospel to the disciples. We, let's read it, 1621. From that time forth, feel the weight of those words. Feel the weight of those upon these disciples. From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So weighty and bearing was this upon his disciples that Jesus took him. Peter took Jesus 
and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. Be it far from thee. Pity thyself. Have pity upon yourself. This shall not be unto thee. This brought one of the strongest rebukes in all of Scripture upon Peter. Matthew 16, 23 says, But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, But he, that is Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus has just revealed the message, the foundation of the gospel to them, and Peter rebukes him. This was going to be Christ's message to his disciples again and again. He would show them over and over and teach them how that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things and be killed and be raised the third day. Brethren, this is the gospel. Jesus is preaching the gospel here. He is the gospel. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. And then in verse 3, he goes on, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Friends, this is the context of the transfiguration. Jesus must die, must suffer and die. And every Lord's Day, every time we meet together, ought to be a reminder that if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Every Lord's Day ought to be a reminder to us. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Brethren, this too is a part of the gospel. It is not works religion. Only Christ saves. But here is the cost of discipleship. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He has set his face as a flint to the place where he would be crucified. Do we savor the things that be of God or they that be of men? Every time that we meet together ought to be a reminder to us. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? These are all following scriptures that are all following in chapter 16. From verse 21, when he starts out to tell them from that time forth. We, we need constant reminders. We live in a fallen, fallen world and we carry around these bodies of death. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Every Lord's Day, every time we meet together, and even more often than these times, we need to remind, also be reminded of verses 27 and 28. And these were the last words that re were recorded by Jesus in Matthew's account before his transfiguration. 
Matthew 16, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. He's coming in his glory. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Don't leave this out of the gospel. We have a promise. Jesus has promised. Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me <laughs> to give every man according as his work shall be. <laughs> He's got a reward with him. Praise God. The transfiguration is a promise of the glory to come. It points us to Christ. It reveals to us the glory of his person. And it not only points us to the cross and the grave, but it goes beyond to point us to his resurrection glory. Jesus has been pouring out his soul to his disciples in chapter 16. He has confirmed his identity as the son of God, and he has laid out the gospel before them. But it is not complete without chapter 17 and the transfiguration. The truth is again set forth immediately after his transfiguration. He goes right back to it in 1722, the same chapter. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. And they, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. The third day the Lord would be raised again. Amen. Here again, the gospel is preached. And notice that word shall. This is a surety. A surety. Peter has said that this thing shall not be unto you. Or let this thing not be unto you. But here is what Jesus said. The son of man shall be betrayed. And they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. Peter. Would, would, we, would rebuke him and encourage him to pity himself. But there is no itching ear in Christ to savor that. In fact, it was an offense to him. There were two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Maybe they will help illustrate too, maybe what I'm saying poorly, perhaps. And the whole account, I wish I could read the whole account, but you know the two men were walking and they were talking about the things that have just happened and Jesus appears and wants to know what their sad countenance is in the matter of their conversation. And they think, well, don't you know what's going on? Have you not been here? And they begin to talk. And Jesus says to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Amen. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? There's Matthew 16. And then to enter into his glory, 
Matthew 17. The transfiguration wasn't Christ's final glory, but it pointed to it. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The transfiguration highlights his resurrection and the glory to come, but it has not come yet. The cross still loomed before Jesus, but here he might encourage his disciples and show them that there was hope of the joy and glory to come. Then, then, after six days, six days later, we come to 17.1. Verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth, up, bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now these words, after six days, as we have already seen, points back and has direct reference to the things that Jesus has just told his disciples in chapter 16. The transfiguration doesn't just happen, and it doesn't just happen without purpose or context. And I know that I've only scratched the surface in conveying this, but there is a great connection here. Now, in taking them up to this mountain, Jesus is doing this. This wasn't their idea. Jesus is doing this. It was Jesus that selected these three disciples and has brought them up into a high mountain apart, away from the crowds away from the everyday events of life, away from the, all the temporary duties and cares that they normally have. Doesn't that just make your heart kind of, or can we do that? <laughs> to get away from everything for a while? They were, they were. They were away from everything. They are now with Jesus, and he has selected these three men for this event. They are for now representatives of the elect. They were, as it were, the elect of the elect. We have no reason or right to be envious of our brethren who are chosen out of the elect church for special and specific duties and ministries. We should support, strengthen, and encourage our brethren when God's call is upon them for some duty or office that constrains them. This is not a time for envy for those who are not so blessed, nor is it a time of boasting for those who weren't or who were selected and chosen. So it's not for envy. It's not for boasting. This was Christ's work. The Spirit gives gifts severally as he will. Jesus did this. Some of us may be very questioning as to why should our Lord only take three of his disciples up into the mountain. Some may wonder why not take them all up. Wouldn't it be a benefit for all his disciples to see the transfiguration? Why just three? And why these three? Well, certainly we have to leave these questions in the wise providence of our Lord 
who knows best what the church needs, and he orders all things good and right. However, I would share a thought. Along with the blessing of the transfiguration of Christ before their eyes, there was also great temptation with it. The transfiguration was a, indeed a revelation of the glory of Christ, but it was in no way to hinder, distract, or replace the cross. Perhaps it was a great protection for the church and the rest of these disciples that they did not see it. Perhaps a blessing withheld is a greater blessing than one wisely un given unwisely. Perhaps a blessing withheld is a greater blessing than one given unwisely. And who knows that better than our Lord? Jesus had told Jesus told Peter later concerning Christ's plans for John. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Christ chose these three who were to be pillars in the church as Paul perceived. And they were not chosen out for their special abilities, but for what Christ would do through them. He did this. Christ did this. Verse 2. And was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light as the light. Christ was transfigured before them. Jesus was changed. This was a change in his appearance. It wasn't that he was someone else now. It was this same Jesus, but his appearance was now changed before them. I've already mentioned, and I love what J.C. Ryle says, that Christ lifted up the corner of the veil to let his disciples get a glimpse of his glory. <clears throat> I don't believe this was the full unveiling of his glory for what human eye could behold such glory. Our eyes can't handle the glory of our sun that shines by days, by the day. We must have special equipment to view it safely, else we would go blind. How much more glory is the Son of God? <clears throat> This was a revelation of Christ's glory, his person, his deity, his godhood. There was a radiance there, a glow. This wasn't the light striking Christ from the outside. This was light and majesty and glory radiating from within and shining out. John saw this transformation, this metamorphism, this changed. And he witnessed of it in his gospel. John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe that that verse there that we just read has more in mind than just the transfiguration, but certainly it brings attention to that. Jesus radiated with light. As these men saw him transformed and transfigured before their eyes. Ecclesiastes 11.7 says, 
Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. How much more Christ, the Son of God. If time permitted, I would love to go to some of those occasions where Christ's glory was revealed in both the Old Testament and New Testament. We will press on. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And behold, I like that word. I probably don't heed to it like I ought to. But I like the word. It's a good word. We know, of course, that it means to pay attention. It is to note something of importance. Behold, don't miss this. But it seems that every definition falls short of the actual word, behold. There's just something about even saying it. Behold. It seems that the word here almost carries an effectual nature to it. It's a place to stop, to muse, to think, to ponder, to meditate, to wonder. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Jesus has brought Peter, James, and John to this high mountain apart, away from it all. And Jesus has been transfigured before these, his disciples, and they see and witness his glory as much as human eyes can bear. And now, in the midst of this scene, behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah have now joined the small band. There they are. This is in itself a display of Christ's power, that they are even there. These two men who have been gone for centuries from this earth are now standing in the presence of these disciples speaking with the Lord. How they have appeared, we don't know. Scripture leaves some questions, and especially our curiosities unknown. But we do know this. They were there. This is not a parable. This is real. This was not just a vision of angels. No, Christ was there. He was real. Moses and Elijah was there. They were real. Now, we uh, learned something else from these words. The disciples are not a part of this conversation. They are, at this point, spectators. Sometimes we need to just sit and listen and behold. This was actually not a time for them to speak. It was not a time for them to interrupt. It was a time for them to listen, to learn, to wonder. Notice what the text says. There appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. They were talking with the transfigured Christ. And the conversation must have been intense. For this was no light conversation around vain and worldly matters. They were in communion with one another, 
Moses and Elijah were communing with their Lord while the disciples watched in wonder and amazement. What were they speaking about? What was the matter of their conversation? Luke gives us great insight into this. Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, there, talk, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke adds this important detail of what they were speaking about. They were, they were speaking about his death and what he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The matter of their conversation centered on Christ's death. Moses and Elijah were speaking with Christ about his death, which was the same message Jesus declared to his disciples in chapter six, Matthew 16. I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew 16. From this time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. This was the matter of their conversation. It was a conference on Christology. It was Christ in the Old Testament. Here we have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, bringing out of their storehouses the rich truths concerning the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, who would, by his death, make atonement for the sins of his people. What a conference. What a conference. The law and the prophets were both there. And both were preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what they were preaching. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything about Moses and Elijah looked to this day. This was the culmination of centuries of the written word. And all of its promises and prophecies, all pointing to and focused on Christ. And here we have the Old Testament witnessing Christ. Moses and Elijah are there for a reason. This is what Jesus did. When Jesus preached to those men that we read about on the road to Emmaus, where did he go to expound the things concerning himself? He went to the law and to the prophets. Philip would preach to the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from the prophet Isaiah and not understanding it. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture right there in Isaiah and preached unto him Jesus. Jesus. <clears throat> 
And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus did not appear on this mountain of transfiguration in his glory without the witness and testimony of Scripture. He was the one that was to come and to whom all the law and prophets pointed to. How many times in the New Testament do we run across the words after some declared truth that says that scriptures might be fulfilled? Or according to the scriptures. If this man... If this man on the mountain has not the witness of Moses and Elijah, he is not the Christ. But here is Moses and Elijah speaking with the Lord about his death and what he should accomplish in Jerusalem. That could be a whole sermon in itself. We could camp right there. They even spoke of the place where it should be, Jerusalem. And had not Jesus told his disciples the same thing? This was a rich conversation. No tape recorders then. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus told the Jews who were seeking to kill him, in John 5.39, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Amen. Moses and Elijah are not on the mount of Christ's transfiguration by accident. They're not there for moral support. They're not there to wish him well or to meet his new disciples. No, they are there. They are they which testify of Christ. Christ is the end of the law to him that believeth. May we learn something from this. You can start anywhere in this book and get to Jesus. Matthew 17, 4. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles. One for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter has done well up to this point. He has been quiet and listened, but we know Peter, he can't stay quiet too long. But we must appreciate his caution here. He begins with, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And Peter was certainly right. Christ chose for them to be there. There wasn't anyone there that should not have been there, and no one was missing. We may also appreciate Peter's humility. Lord, if thou wilt. And that's a good prayer. Lord, if thou wilt. He is not demanding here. But he is certainly suggesting what he thinks might be helpful for this conference. Here then, Peter is now carried away in his haste. 
And in Luke's account, there were these words added concerning the building of these three tabernacles that Peter mentioned. It says, not knowing what he said. This is what it says about Peter, not knowing what he said. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences and sometimes great and far-reaching consequences. We need, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to take every word, thought, and idea through the sieve of God's word. His word is unchanging. And our ideas and our lives need to line up with his word. If not, we may be found to be fighting with God and kicking against the pricks. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Brethren, we do not dare add our good ideas to the gospel. Peter adds his own thoughts and idea here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, it would certainly not be difficult to understand why Peter would say this. Christ Jesus is transfigured before them. They are witnessing his glory. Why wouldn't they want to stay? But Peter has another agenda. And he is still savoring the things that be of men and not the things that be of God. Peter has confused the purpose of the transfiguration. He would be happy and satisfied to just stay there, maybe even build a permanent home. I know I'm adding a little bit of thought here, but he's ready to stay. Let's tabernacle right here. Friends, we're, we're pilgrims and sojourners. Our home is not here. Amen. We're passing through. Peter's plan and idea would do away with this talk of death and going to Jerusalem. Wasn't this good enough? Did they have to leave? Whatever Peter had in mind, it would have been a distraction of Christ's purpose and mission. No matter how wonderful it was for these disciples to see the Lord Jesus transfigured, that would not save them. The transfiguration did not provide salvation for any man. The transfiguration provided no salvation for any man. The transfiguration is the fruit of salvation, but it saves no one. Even to see Christ in his glory and then to reject his cross is eternal death. The cross could not be bypassed. <clears throat> the word says that Satan took Jesus up to exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and promised that if Jesus would fall down and worship Satan, 
He could have all the kingdoms now. No need for the cross. You can have it all right now. Here is perhaps a similar temptation. Peter is, in a sense, offering another way of salvation. Show your glory now. Don't men need to see who you are? Won't the multitudes come and worship you when they see what we see? Let's just stay here. Is not our Lord long-suffering with us? And notice something else that Peter does here. Peter sees an equality here, and Jesus is simply mixed in with the law and the prophets. It is three tabernacle that he bids for. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Peter gave them all equal share and level plain. And again, as Luke says, Peter knew not what he said. Do we say things sometimes without realizing the ramifications of what we're saying? But there is no share in Christ's glory. Moses pointed to Christ, but he doesn't share in his glory. Elijah pointed to Christ, but he has no share in his glory, and neither do we. It is all Jesus. It is all about him, and it is all about his glory. To him be glory and honor and dominion forever. Amen. Peter spoke in his haste, but heaven interrupted him. Verse 5. While he, Peter, yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Amen. Praise God for heavenly interruptions. <laughs> Not just for Peter, but for us as well. Sometimes we need to be interrupted, and heaven doesn't apologize for this. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. God often met with his people in the Old Testament in the cloud. The cloud was a sign of God's presence and holiness. When Moses finished the work of the tabernacle, the cloud appeared. In Exodus 40, we read, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the Lord and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence was real. And his name is holy. Wanted to take that farther. But I also wanted to get through this. <laughs> then a voice out of the cloud spoke. God spoke. The Father spoke. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is my beloved son. The father is pleased with the son. 
Nothing is said here of Moses or Elijah. Nothing. Now we know that they were servants of the Most High God. For it says that in Hebrews that Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ as a son. The father is pleased with his son. Jesus is the beloved of the father. <clears throat> he is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The only way for men to please the father is to be in his son. For the Father is well pleased with the Son. I mentioned earlier that John's gospel seems to be a, a whole book of the transfiguration. There is so much said, so much doctrine, so much theology on this relationship between the Father and the Son Amen. in the book of John. There is perfect love, perfect peace, Perfect unity in the Godhead. Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. He says, for I am in the Father and the Father in me. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When we are saved, we have a new relationship with Moses. You have a new relationship with the law as a Christian. You are not under it anymore. You are not under its condemnation anymore. But because of Christ, you love the law and you seek to establish it. But you cannot please God no matter how many tabernacles you build for Moses and Elijah. The Father is pleased with the Son. Amen. And we need to be living in this verse. God help us. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Who has our ear tonight? Who are we listening to? The scripture says, the Father says, hear ye him. That's the whole focus of the gospel. That is the focus of all of our preaching. That is salvation. Leave the three tabernacles and come to Christ. Our salvation hinges on those three words, hear ye him. More scriptures. I'll go on. Uh, Matthew 17, 6. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. When the disciples heard this voice from heaven, they were afraid. Scripture says, yea, they were sore afraid. And they fell on their faces. There was only one place for them to go, and that was down. There have been revivals throughout history that have brought men down to the ground. Satan, of course, always has his counterfeit. But what is he imitating except that which would be real? 
What is amazing to me about this scene or account is that it wasn't so much what they saw that brought them to the ground on their face. It was what they heard. They saw Jesus transfigured, and they were ready to build three tabernacles. But now they heard a voice out of the cloud, and they were on the ground. How holy this scene must have been. God was there. His presence was there. God told Moses years before, take off thy shoes, you're on holy ground. I know our prayer is, Lord, make that more, even more real in our day. But we can't generate that. It wasn't so much the cloud that frightened them. It wasn't a dark cloud from Mount Sinai. No, it was a bright cloud. This whole scene speaks of gospel. And this voice from heaven shook their inner being, and they trembled and fell to the ground. We think sometimes maybe that if we could see the transfiguration, we would believe. If we could just see that and witness Christ transfigured, wouldn't we believe? No. You may be moved beyond description, shaken to the very core, but just seeing that would not make you believe. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Often faith comes in a still, small voice. And some of you can testify to that. The transfiguration was necessary. It was critical. Christ had purpose. But it was no pep rally to fire them up. There was a need for this special revelation of his glory. But it is still several chapters to go through the book. Christ still must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised from the dead. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. We cannot isolate the transfiguration from its context. This revelation of Christ's glory in his transfiguration, as his face shines with the light of the sun, and inner radiance beams and burns and shines from within, even until the raiment itself was white as light, is all in the context of Christ's mission to Jerusalem, to suffer and die. Verse 7, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And Jesus came and touched them. Now this is marvelous already. He didn't have to do that. Wouldn't it be enough for him to just speak to them? Or maybe even yell at a distance? But he did not do that. He came to them and touched them. And that may sound simple and meaningless, 
unless we are on the face, are on our face, on the ground trembling, and then it means something. Jesus touched them. <coughs> Excuse me. We can tell our wives all day long that we love them, but if we never touch them, what does it mean? What do the, what do the words mean without a touch, without a hug, without loving them in their currency? There is no, there is no love in a family, at, at least properly, without touch. Something's wrong. It's not healthy. <laughs> Taylor was telling me he was injured. His knee was injured not too long ago, playing with his kids. I wonder if maybe some of our injuries shouldn't be, shouldn't all be at work. Maybe a few should be at home playing with the kids. And not promoting injuries, though. Hope he gets better soon. Some of us probably need to remember that we're not raising adults. We're raising children, and we're raising them to be adults. But they're born children. Jesus' disciples were on their face, sore afraid, and he went over and touched them. And there is no touch like his touch. Us fathers, especially, ought to get our children. Uh, some with big families may want to do it a couple at a time, but and get them on our lap and talk to them and read to them, read scripture to them. But in all your reading, read a good children's book to them too. You know, we ought to be able to read a good children's book to our children. Like one about the, the hen who lost her egg. She looked everywhere and she couldn't find it, and then she remembered it was right where she laid it. Listen, we ought to be able to do that. And Jesus not only touches them, but he speaks to them. <clears throat> Arise and be not afraid. My throat. I'm going to need it. Sorry, I have to keep drinking. <clears throat> now, remember the words that the Father has just spoken. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, to some of us, that hear ye him part can still sound like the law speaking, doesn't it sometimes? Hear ye him sounds to us the same as the law. Hear ye him, hear ye him means authority. It means accountability, and that is true. There is authority in the command, hear ye him. But we ought to hear more than just the voice of the law in those words. Hear ye him. Now we know that behind those words is the authority of Christ, the head of the church. He is our Lord and master. 
Yet after God has given this command and affirmation of Christ, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. The very first words that Christ spoke to his disciples was not, you need to go to Africa and suffer for me. Now, he may tell someone to do that. But this man, this God-man, this head of the church, this one who has a name given to him above every name, touches his disciples, and his first words to them are, rise and be not afraid. After, are, are these the words of a, of a hard taskmaster? Or is it the words of a loving Lord? To hear him at times may be a rebuke, asked Peter. But more often, it is words of comfort and cheer and grace. <clears throat> it is so easy for us to entertain, so easy for us to entertain hard thoughts of God. We need to be washed daily with the word so that we might come more and more to know the blessedness of our blessed Lord and to hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. And who can separate us from the love of God? Verse 8. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now this is beautiful. This is absolutely wonderful. When these disciples who were so terribly afraid lift up their eyes, they only see one person, and that's Jesus. When they open their eyes, they are presented with the only one worthy of their vision. Save Jesus only. Where's Moses? He's gone. Where's Elijah? He's not there. They saw no man. It was just Jesus. And that was enough. To have Jesus is to have all. <clears throat> the transfiguration began with Jesus... And it, was, it has ended with Jesus. Amen. He is enough. He is all we need. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He is the fullness of the law and the prophets. Now, the text doesn't say, but it would seem to me that everything that so moved and captivated them are gone. This is what I believe. It doesn't actually say this. I believe that the shadow, I'm sorry, I believe that the, cl the cloud that overshadowed them is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. And that Jesus is no longer in his glorified appearance. They lift up their eyes and they see the man, Christ Jesus. The same appearance 
of the one who led them up the mountain will now lead them down. It was not the transfigured Christ that went to Jerusalem. It was not the transfigured Christ that they spat on and mocked. It was not the transfigured Christ that they beat and put a crown of thorns on his holy head and nailed him to a cross. It wasn't the transfigured Christ that hung between heaven and earth and life and death. It wasn't the transfigured Christ that paid the full penalty for our sins and redeemed us by his own blood. No, it was the man, Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man. <clears throat> Jesus must be veiled in the weakness of his flesh. His glory was hidden away from the eyes of men. The word says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. His glory was hid from men. That man on the cross, though, is the Lord of glory. <clears throat> Veiled away from the eyes of sinful man. As the words of our song, Holy, 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 say in the third verse, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. Bear with me, we're almost done. <coughs> Though the eye of sinful man, his glory may not see, yet the eyes of faith see this same Jesus, whom ye crucified, is both Lord and Christ. To the eyes of faith, this man Christ Jesus is the Son of God, God the Lord of glory. <clears throat> the transfiguration not only points us to the resurrection glory of Christ, but it also points to the glory that we will have with Jesus in eternity. His desire is that we might be with him in his glory. John 17. We have a sure hope and promise in Christ of his glory. He has power to change us. He not only has power to save us and deliver us from the power of sin and the reign of sin, but one day to save us from the very presence of sin. The day that the church is saved to sin no more. I leave you with a scripture and one more thought. Philippians 3.20 For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall, there's that word shall, change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. 
according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That's beyond any scope of our ability to fathom. <clears throat> we need the transfiguration, but we need it in the context of chapter 16. Peter saw the transfiguration, yet he still denied his Lord three times. And what got him through that trial and the bitter tears that he wept, it wasn't so much the transfiguration. It was that he might lift up his eye, and there was the man Christ Jesus, who bore his sorrows and carried his griefs, and for Peter, it was save Jesus only. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you will stand, we'll read the benediction. <clears throat> Second, Thessalonians 3.16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen. Dismissed.